0: Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. Welcome to the first episode of Invested in Climate. I'm thrilled to kick off by going right to the power and politics that are crucial to decarbonizing our society, creating the new markets, jobs, infrastructure, and rules that we need to address climate change. In the United States today, the vast majority of people want more climate action. They want government to fund more renewable energy research to regulate CO2 emissions and take other climate-positive measures. Yet the Build Back Better bill remains stuck in Congress, and the country's ability to meet its climate change commitments is uncertain at best. So I sat down with Sean Kosofsky, Executive Director of the Climate Advocacy Lab, to learn about the state of climate advocacy in the U.S., The Climate Advocacy Lab is a community of over 3,000 climate advocates, organizers, researchers, and data specialists. They are literally the center of the advocacy movement in the U.S. They use evidence-based research to help climate advocates across the country run smarter, more effective campaigns. Sean has been working in the advocacy world for a long time, has been part of several successful movements, and I knew he'd offer great insights to what we can all do to help accelerate progress on the policy front. So let's get going. Hi, everyone. I'm very pleased to welcome Sean Kosofsky, Executive Director of the Climate Advocacy Lab. Sean, welcome to Invested in Climate. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Very good. Thank you so much for joining today. Very excited for our conversation. You don't know this, but you were actually one of the people who inspired me to start this podcast. Oh, why is that? Uh, Well, we had a a fantastic conversation a few months back, and I was just really inspired by what I heard and really felt that more people need to hear about the work that you're doing and also find ways to be supportive. So thank you for that inspiration and excited to be able to hear more about it today and be able to share more with more people. Tell us a bit about how you got started in advocacy work and, and climate advocacy.
1: Well, I've been involved in nonprofit work now for about 29 years. I got a pretty early start. At age 16, I was working for the YMCA, doing just, you know, youth work in my community. And toward the end of high school, I... Got involved with the PIRGs, the Public Interest Research Group, which is really well known for environmental work and consumer advocacy work, and did their clean water campaign work for a summer. And I was promoted to assistant campaign manager. So I did that for two summers. But right after high school, I also came out of the closet. And so I was very, very charged up about doing LGBTQ civil rights work at the time and was very fortunate and stumbled into a role with the statewide gay rights organization there. And I stayed there for 12 years. I became the policy and political director there. So I ran all legislation, our political action committee. Then in my early 30s, I moved for love down to Raleigh, North Carolina and ended up uh, running NARAL, the abortion rights organization there. I think I was the only man at the time running an aff- uh, affiliate of NARAL, but it was a very exciting uh, project. We were very successful in getting a couple laws passed when I was there, including comprehensive sex education in North Carolina and uh, a law banning protesting at abortion providers homes. And then I moved on to Blueprint North Carolina, which is the organization in, called a state table in North Carolina that was the coordinating table for all the groups in the progressive sector doing voter engagement, voter turnout, and uh, policy work. Eventually, I moved to New York and ran a bullying prevention foundation, a small family foundation there. But my life has taken me to San Francisco and now to New York. But I run the Climate Advocacy Lab for about three and a half years now. I had always wanted to work in climate and finally got my chance. It's a cause that I think everyone should be participating in because it affects everyone. And that's how I sort of got this uh, role. I also do a little bit of consulting on the side. So I get to work with lots of purpose-driven organizations, but climate is really where my heart is now.
0: Sean, can you briefly describe what the Climate Advocacy Lab is?
1: The Climate Advocacy Lab was created as a networked organization, a movement support organization. So we're sort of behind the scenes a little bit, but our organization gathers and synthesizes research on what works and what doesn't in climate advocacy. So when people are testing out messages or tactics or different things that work, we gather that, synthesize it, and share it with the entire advocacy movement. There's about 3,500 individual activists, funders, and academics that are in the lab. So not only do we gather what works and what doesn't and share that, because we don't have any time to be using tactics that don't work, or worse, backfire. But the other thing we do is make sure that this large network of people in our movement are sharing information with each other. They're connecting with each other and getting trained up on how to use everything that exists in our database. So it's not good enough to just share information. You need to sometimes activate them with training webinars, educational content. So that's a lot of what the Climate Advocacy Lab does. We are, I think, the largest network of climate advocates in the US. 1,500 organizations and growing are in our network. And that's uh, just connecting people, training them and giving them the resources they need to to win more effectively and to use the best possible tactics.
0: Fantastic. So much important work. Let's dive into a basic question. Why does climate advocacy matter? What must government and the political process accomplish in order for us to address the climate crisis?
1: In a way, climate is everything. It's our economy, it's energy, it's how things move from one place to another, it's how every element of our home and our devices and gadgets are powered. Climate has, uh, it sounds like a word that's far away in time or far away in distance, but climate is really about clean energy. It is really about how we power almost everything in our community and our economy is based on energy really and on so many levels so i think for everyone this touches their lives whether they're realizing that the methane that they're burning in a gas stove in their home is poisoning them or whether the the vehicle that they're taking to work every single day is contributing to a bad environment right around them it has everything to do with packaging i mean just there is every part of our lives is touched by climate and clean energy and when it really Became clear to me that this was touching on everything else in our in our economic system. It was something we had to tackle. And I wanted to be in that fight.
0: Great. But why advocacy? Can't we just innovate our way out of this?
1: I think technology is going to play a huge and important role in the realm of solutions and optimism. But I also think that we have the existing technology we need today to solve this problem. What we really need is the political will. Advocacy is the difference in my mind between wanting to end hunger and and wanting to feed the hungry, right? We need to change things off at the spigot. We actually want to end hunger. We want to end climate change. We need to advocate. We need to pressure decision makers at the corporate level and the government level to do something because we elect our leaders to see these patterns and and changes ahead and act because average individual people cannot change energy policy in this country. We can do individual changes, but we need our political and economic leaders to make the tough decisions, and that's where advocacy comes in, is applying pressure, and that's what I want to do.
0: Very good. Thanks so much. And well, how's it going? How would you describe the state of climate advocacy, particularly in the U.S. today?
1: After many years of climate activists and advocates expressing alarm and just urgency around this problem. We finally, in the past four or five years, have started to see a huge tipping point. Climate denial is still a problem out there, but it is it is dramatically less than it used to be, more so than ever before. People are alarmed by the problem. And starting in 2018, right around the time I stepped into the movement, we started to see an explosion of advocacy. Of course, that has nothing to do with me, but it's just the timing, right? So as long as I've been in the movement we have seen the youth climate strikes which are just inspiring people around the world we see story after story of young people even millennials down to much younger being terrified about the future and terrified about having a family and terrified about you know an aspirational future for their families with the ipcc report coming out of the un back in 2018 which sent shockwaves through the world around how Little time we actually have to make a sizable difference. Activism exploded after that also. And then with the introduction of the Green New Deal, we have just seen just a huge, huge uptick in people being interested. Now the gold standard around the world is some version of the Green New Deal. So... When you have a vision for the world, it ignites and inspires people to act. I think that the presidential campaign in the United States in 2020 also moved tons of candidates to prioritize climate, where they had previously given it very little airtime. So something's happened in the past few years where advocacy is really exploding, and we're seeing companies and countries and politicians, even conservatives, realizing they must act. And it's a really exciting time.
0: Uh, That's great. You know, since you brought up presidential politics, there's been a lot of coverage of President Biden's struggle to achieve many of the key elements of his climate agenda. Let's start on the bright side, though. Have there been wins that will make a big difference?
1: Absolutely. Simply the fact that Biden and Harris ran Unlike most politicians do, which is they run to the left in the primary and then move things a little bit more to the center in the general, Biden and Harris did decide to run to the left on climate. Like They went all in on climate toward the end of their campaign, and it paid off. It absolutely inspired voters to say we need to do something about this. So simply changing the math and the configuration around what's possible in politics is the first win, right? That you can run on climate, which no one thought you could do and win. In addition to that, the first week or two that Biden was in office, he just were setting off a huge chain reaction of press releases and news attention about the critical climate investments that he was making. So the cabinet that he appointed, Jennifer Granholm, all these other people who, you know, a climate czar, the fact that he appointed an all-of-government approach to the climate challenge is really impressive. So many articles came out early in the administration about how the way we're going to tackle this is by turning the purchasing power of government and policy and regulation and key appointments and prioritization, executive orders, and investing in environmental justice. So simply communicating with the bully pulpit that the president has, has sent a signal around the world to other leaders that they should be getting on board to business leaders and states and governors. There's all of that as progress. And in the infrastructure bill and in other legislation that's been able to pass, we have made progress. The Build Back Better law is not dead. Although as an omnibus, huge package, social spending package that it was originally introduced as is probably not going to be the thing that we see as the final result, there are talks in Washington now to revive climate portions of that bill. So I do think we will see some progress on climate and some progress on clean energy. It may be messy. It may be imperfect. But I do anticipate something happening this year. And I think there are other wins in terms of reversing Trump rollbacks of protections on chemicals and regulations and doing more for fuel efficiency standards for our cars. So there's been a lot of positivity, but we're only a year in, and we've already seen a huge push by this administration to do more.
0: Fantastic. Thanks so much. So the Build Back Better uh, bill uh, has been stuck in Congress for months And it's been blocked pretty much solely by a single senator, uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Uh, And Manchin, we know, is not just someone who has built his career and his wealth uh, in the coal industry, but still owns a coal company uh, that pays him several times more than his job as a senator. The New York Times uh, recently published a detailed account of Manchin's personal business and how those interests are potentially in conflict with his his political responsibilities, Uh, and we'll include a link to that article in the show notes on investinclimate.com. He has blocked climate legislation for years and has forced the West Virginians he represents to pay higher electricity bills so that he can continue to sell low-grade and inefficient, uh, a particularly low-grade and inefficient type of coal. Why has there not been outrage about the single-handed blockage of really the most important climate legislation in U.S. history?
1: Well, I think that the politics of the way the U.S. Senate works is usually stacked against progressives and Democrats, right? The way the Senate is designed, it's pretty undemocratic, private holds, filibusters. I mean, like individual senators can hold up a judicial nomination. The Senate is a pretty undemocratic institution. And you add on top of that, the weird rules inside the chamber, it makes it pretty difficult to pass. If there was one more Democratic senator, it would make Senator Manchin's position on this basically sidelined, right? Or, Or almost irrelevant. But we have this split right now and it makes it very difficult to shine a light on him because he is a popular democrat in a state where mostly republicans are winning at the statewide level like for president. So I think that if it was Kirsten Cinema or someone else on the ballot there's a way to come at them from the left and on the right, but Joe Manchin I think would probably revel in being attacked by the left. It only cements his strategy of being seen as a moderate in his state. But it's been really, really hard to criticize him in that state, because I believe the same old politics that have been at play in the progressive movement and in Washington for years show that you can't just move into someone's state and activate their base against them. And I believe early on in this fight, we should have been investing in organizing local organizing to get Joe Manchin on board instead of just hoping that he would play ball. Not that our DC organizations were just hoping for that. They knew exactly what they were up against, but I think there was a sense that there was going to be some kind of progress and no one anticipated the late end of game reversal of his promise to do something on that Build Back Better bill. So in order to have the strength we need, we have to organize. Multi-year funding needs to move to local organizing. We tend to not do that in the progressive movement. And that's the one thing that could have moved Manchin.
0: Characterizing it as he single-handedly blocking Build Back Better probably isn't accurate, right? There's 50 Republican senators that also have not been interested in moving the bill forward. So I'm curious. Can we move past this idea that it is a, a political issue where the left and the right are so divided on it? We know that in the business world, companies are seeing climate as the next uh, trillion dollar industry, several trillion dollar industries, an important source of job creation, important source of infrastructure, important source of building a more cohesive, resilient society, and yet it's still politically divisive. Why is that? And will we ever get past that?
1: Yeah, I mean, Joe Manchin might not single-handedly be defeating this legislation, but he is the only one person who can change the outcome. He's the only one person because on the Republican side of the aisle right now, you know, they have completely succumbed to or even advocated and push and moved their base to a place of climate denialism and putting profit and jobs ahead of life. And, you know, many of them claim to be pro-life, but there's nothing more anti-life than allowing this cataclysmic pollution to wipe out people all over the world and cause all of these fires and drought and displacement. I mean, it's not a pro-life position to be dismissing all of this. But your question is, how can we get past this? And I don't know if the Republican Party, who has been completely seized and strangled by hard right activists can find their way to the other side of this. I think at the local level, conservatives and Republicans are doing much more interesting work on climate and trying to educate their base, and young Republicans and conservatives understand the need to do this. The problem is the Republican Party right now is led by much older elements who are very tied in with oil and gas money and industry money. And I don't see in the next couple of years a reason for them to abandon that. They love the jobs coming to their district for a new battery factory or a new electric vehicle company. They love doing the shovel-ready projects in their district, but they are not seeing the bigger picture and they're not investing. As you said, there's huge amounts of money, job, opportunity, and development to be had in the clean energy business.
0: One of Biden's aspirations was also that investment in infrastructure and decarbonization would be equitable. Uh, The Justice40 framework aims to ensure that at least 40% of investments benefit disadvantaged communities, which have typically been left behind uh, by past investments and which disproportionately feel the pain of climate impacts like extreme weather or unclean air and water. Infrastructure investments, however, go through states. So I'm curious if climate justice, uh, this is uh, addressing intersectional issues of climate and inequality, is something that you're working on and, and hopeful about.
1: Yes, I think that it begins with the public commitment by the White House and by our elected leaders to invest in the Justice40 initiative. And I think that we still are going to need climate organizers, activists, and experts to be applying pressure to the administration to hold them accountable to their promises. I've never seen as large a push and successful momentum by environmental justice organizations as I have in the past three to four years. It is completely changing the calculus and the math in the climate community. We are seeing organizations and funders fall all over themselves to get in line now it's not enough. I'm not saying that there's adequate resources, but people are falling all over themselves to say, now is the time to do what we hadn't done before, which is invest in environmental justice and frontline organizations. The White House, I think, is taking it seriously, but they still have a ways to go to honor their pledge. So we do need activism, advocacy, you know, people pressuring the administration to keep to that. But I'm hopeful that the framework that the White House laid out gives a signal to everyone about what is a priority.
0: Coming out of last fall, the COP26 discussions in Glasgow, climate was absolutely on the top of uh, all media feeds, everyone's radar. It really felt like this is an unprecedented historic moment of galvanizing movement, uh, attention, resources, and then suddenly Russia invades Ukraine. Our attention shifts. And there are uh, really important conversations being had about how really the world order is shifting as a result. But I'm curious, how does the invasion impact climate advocacy and, and the moment that we're in for climate?
1: All signs point to the fact that the invasion of Ukraine by Russia should be accelerating energy independence and clean energy, You know, moving to that clean energy. But what we're actually seeing is that the world wasn't prepared for a potential turnoff of gas and oil and other fossil fuel resources from Russia or in that pipeline sort of movement from east to west. So what we're seeing is instead of people moving more rapidly to clean energy, which can't just happen on a dime, we're seeing people... Very worried about their elections, including the Democrats here in the United States, worried about losing seats in Congress or losing, you know, popularity and wanting to make sure that people aren't paying more at the pump. So they're willing to invest very quickly in more natural gas, more fossil fuel, tapping the natural national reserves of of fuel. And it's really disheartening to see how politicians in Washington are falling all over themselves right now to try to make sure that fossil fuels are cheap for people. I understand the calculus. I understand it practically, but you'd think what happened in Ukraine would actually speed this up. But, there are many conversations around the country about how we need clean energy because of this exact issue. We should be able to take on tyrants around the world and not have to suffer at home when we actually take that moral position. Around Europe, they are acting, I think, faster than we are around making sure that the investments around clean energy move even more quickly because of this situation. But I think in the United States, we're in a very tough spot.
0: Let's switch from the global level to more local. You mentioned uh, the importance of local organizing, uh, and I know that many of the organizations you work with and advise operate at a local level. How important are local politics to addressing climate change, and how is that advocacy faring relative to the national stage?
1: I have always believed in every movement for social or environmental justice, the local is key. It's always local. We will always need people in the state legislatures and in D.C., you know, lobbying and electing our friends and unelecting our enemies. And, you know, all of these different strategies that are taken on in the C3 and C4 world or the PAC world. But really, the change happens from political leaders and in communities by local people. The litigants for every lawsuit are local. The wins that you have at a refinery or shutting down a pipeline are local. So many of the optimistic wins or stories and case studies of things that are impacting people's lives are happening at the local level. So because people are very invested in where they live, we need local activism. We need local advocacy. But for some reason, we haven't been able to put those long-term investments into place. Foundations tend to think in a one or two year cycle, if you're lucky, and they don't want to think about 10-year investments in grassroots organizing, which really builds up local leadership, storytelling, and impact. And what's one of the things we need to change is making sure that local organizing is funded. So yes, I think that there's always a need for state and national work and corporate work all the things are needed. But I do believe local organizing is ultimately the key to folks like Manchin and Kirsten Cinema. When they see people acting locally in their district, they get scared that they can mobilize larger numbers. And that's why we need more organizing.
0: Climate isn't the first advocacy movement you've supported. You mentioned several others. I'm, I'm curious, what are some things that climate can learn from other movements that, that you've seen?
1: Well, I don't want to sound like I have some sort of master you know, knowledge about other sectors or that climate, all the work that's gone into getting us where we are now on climate has not been appreciated. But I do think each movement can learn from other movements. I think the environmental movement can sometimes be a little insular, thinking that they're different than other movements. And it only takes looking at the marriage equality movement, at the minimum wage movement, at so many other causes where we've made progress over time to look at these lessons. I'm a big believer that every single social movement that has made any progress since the 60s has been focused on individual people telling their stories. Individual people are at the center of the story, whether it's stem cell research, gay marriage, all sorts of different issues. But in the climate movement, we've made it about things that are far away in time and far away in in location. Polar bears, Arctic ice, parts per million, degree temperature change, uh, what's the temperature, what's the world gonna look like in 2050 or 2100? That is just not practical for everyday lives. We need to talk about our kids' asthma. We need to talk about wildfires wiping out our towns. I used to live in the Bay and there are entire towns that are gone completely just wiped off the face of the earth because of these wildfires, islands that are going underwater. We need to tell those individual local stories. Any movement that centers things that are really far away in time or really far away in place are not going to be as successful. So I think that one of the things we've learned from other social movements is the personal is political, from AIDS activism through ACT UP and other movements. I also think in the abortion rights movement, which I was a part of for a while, I think that we have sometimes forgotten that the uh, it's not just about choice and rights. It is about forcing women into motherhood against their will. And it is about like, you know, the quality of life for these women. And I think that sometimes we have left men out of the conversation as if we're only engaging women in the abortion rights fight. And we need to engage all of these different men out there who have votes and dollars and care. And so I think we need to look at different movements understand the uniqueness of climate and the far reaching nature of it. But we need to engage more people in advocacy because it is actually in their direct financial interests and close to home interests. They want better lives. They want lower costs for energy. This is the reason why people should be getting involved in the climate movement now.
0: What are some of the key challenges that are keeping you awake at night?
1: I think the single biggest thing that worries me is time is against us, right? We have to do big, giant things fast. I did see a recent news story that said that the ability to turn off fossil fuel emissions can actually Cause the environment, the atmosphere to get better much, much faster than we thought. So, the faster we can stop pumping fossil fuels into the air, we could actually see very rapid change in, in, in a good way. But it does worry me that we're not moving fast enough to implement these changes. The second thing I'm really worried about is disinformation. Disinformation has become one of the leading ways to turn people against positive change. That is not just misinformation, spreading things that are wrong, but disinformation, actively trying to dissuade, actively trying to distract and confuse or lie about things like climate change and human-caused climate change. But disinformation as a tactic to actually confuse and make people sit at home And spread bad information on purpose, paid programs that exist out there have me very, very worried about our democracy. We've seen in the past few years that spreading disinformation can absolutely have an effect on the populace. People who believe the big lie about the last election or that vaccines aren't good or that climate change isn't happening, or that we have a flat earth. These things are dangerous. They're really, really dangerous to progress. And I'm, I'm surprised at how far those things reach. So disinformation and the speed at which we're moving are the two things that keep me up at night.
0: You mentioned earlier that climate is something you think all people should care about and be involved in. What should listeners be doing? What, what are, say, the top three, five tangible, specific ways for people to make a difference in supporting climate advocacy?
1: I think the most important thing that people can do about climate change is free, and it is easy, and that is talk about it all the time. For some reason, people feel like this is controversial, and if I talk about climate change, people will tune me out, or they'll think I'm a liberal, or they'll think that I'm turning the conversation political. It isn't. It's a deeply personal thing. And we know from research that the more we talk about climate change, the more we create room for other people to talk about change. And this spiral effect starts to happen where it's no longer a taboo topic. And it's actually something that you can talk about at the dinner table or at church or in the supermarket. But using the weather or using some kind of thing happening in the world as an excuse, Ukraine, whatever, to talk about Climate change. So that's the most important thing. It sounds like that's a silly thing, but there is research. There's absolutely research to show that simply talking about it a ton more impacts the staffers for lawmakers and lawmakers because they think no one's talking about this at all. That's the first thing. The second thing people can do is join a climate or clean energy organization today. Don't just make a donation. Join. So that might mean giving a small gift. It might mean volunteering, like really participate. Any climate or clean energy organization that you get involved with is going to have a series of actions, things they want you to do, people they want you to contact, letters to write, actions to show up for. But you can only really do that if you're attached to some kind of movement or organization. You can create your own thing for sure, but that's harder. So I would say get involved and donate to some organization. Those are the two most important things.
0: Well, let's double click on both of those. In terms of talking about climate, you bring up climate, climate change at a cocktail party or a dinner. You might have just depressed everyone or scared them or just brought up something deeply uncomfortable. Any tips or resources for people that are looking to create helpful, productive conversations about climate?
1: People should be worried about climate change, but it doesn't mean that's how your conversation has to revolve, right? You can talk about climate change in the sense that there is an aspirational future ahead of us. and There is an opportunity. The Biden White House has been talking about climate change as opportunity. Tons of new jobs. There are so many buildings that need to be retrofitted, cars that need to be changed out and, you know, solar panels that need to be installed. There's so much opportunity for us to create a better world. Only things things can only get better if we act on this. So there is a way to talk about climate change that isn't a downer. Instead, it's a way to say, you know what? I really want a better future for my kids. I want energy costs to come down. I want better air. I want conservation. And all of that's possible by actually talking to our neighbors about these changes, voting accordingly. But there is a way to fill people with optimism instead of just gloom and doom. Gloom and doom doesn't really work that well. So I'd encourage folks to really focus on what's possible instead of like what doom lies ahead.
0: And in terms of finding organizations to join, any tips or resources of where people should look?
1: There are so many organizations out there that you can work with, and I would strongly encourage folks to get involved in ones that work locally. So if you're a young person, you might want to get involved with uh, Fridays for the Future, which is the Greta Thunberg you know organization, which is doing actions. You might want to get involved with Sunrise. If you want to get involved locally, Sierra Club does lots of work around the country, or 350. There are many organizations. And if you're in an area with environmental justice communities, whether it's Detroit or flint or i'm from detroit so i love talking about michigan or in uh you know the gulf there are communities all over the country that have environmental justice organizations that could use your help so there are many organizations if you are interested and eager to learn how you can get involved locally contact me contact the lab we can tell you about what organizations exist in all 50 states and territories and tell you where you can get active
0: Great. Thanks, Sean. We will include uh, links to those organizations you mentioned in the show notes. And specifically for the Climate Advocacy Lab, are there ways that listeners can be helpful?
1: The most important thing for folks to support the Climate Advocacy Lab is to just get involved with one of our member organizations. The way we're sort of structured is not to take individual donations from the movement. We mostly work with large funders. But what we really want are people being activated, showing up, writing letters, doing all that. So the most important thing you can do for the lab or the climate movement in this country is to find an organization and get involved and commit to it and spread the word. Tell everyone. Everyone on your social media accounts, on email, just shout from the rooftops for people to get involved in this struggle because we can win and you want to be on the winning side when we do.
0: Fantastic. Sean, this podcast, Investing in Climate, is really focused on five categories of action that people can be uh, using to make a difference on climate. Work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. You've talked about uh, the work that you're doing on the activism side, and I know that that keeps you quite busy. Is there anything else that you're doing in your lifestyle to try to make a difference on climate?
1: Absolutely. I think for me in my life, I have dramatically reduced how much beef I eat. I have also changed. I mostly walk everywhere. I'm fortunate enough to live in New York City. So I haven't owned a car since 2014. I take mass transit wherever I can. I walk wherever I can. I organize my life and my day so I can possibly walk uh, somewhere or take mass transit. I try to do all those things. I definitely make contributions wherever I can. I try to reduce the amount of wasted plastics that I, that come into my life. There's all these little things that I can do, but mostly if there's time for an upgrade and an appliance, I try to push for the better option. There's all these little things you can do all the time. For real change to happen, we need to have policy change to just really make it easier for people to make these financial decisions. Uh, but yes, that, those are some of the things I do.
0: Finally, what are you doing to stay inspired and energized, especially with so much on your shoulders?
1: I think that I consume tons of information about positive things that are happening in the movement. My favorite publication is Grist and Grist is a publisher and they put out a daily email about what is actually happening that is successful or what is winning and what is working and that one email every day is the thing I open to make sure I am inspired by what's possible. It could be a new lawsuit that we won or it could be a incinerator that was shut down or coal and decline but there's I get something every day from that. So I would really encourage folks to get in front of and consume information about where we're winning, including subscribing to Grist. That's just one place.
0: Fantastic. Sean, thank you so much for being here with us today. We look forward to tracking your progress more, and we'll definitely include notes in the show notes about how to get involved with Climate Advocacy Lab and other organizations in your community. Thank you again, Sean. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.